Welcome to episode 346 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Oh, if the sky comes falling down for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So it happened again last week. This doesn't often happen. But we had what I think was perhaps one of the most killer intros of all time. One of the most fantastic openings of any Reformed Brotherhood podcast episode. And it's lost to time. And for me, it was probably top five funniest moments on our podcast that (laughs) nobody else will ever hear. And in some ways, that just grieves my heart. So the inside baseball on this is, as you noted in the last episode, you and I were trying to get together. We had a time schedule that we had to reschedule, and we finally sat down to do some recording. And because it was at a different time, you were in a different location. And what we didn't realize was that different location caused some problems probably with all of the internet connections that we have. Some people don't know they're actually not sitting face-to-face most of the time. We do this through the interwebs, or at least the interwebs allow us to see one another, and we do the recording locally. So with all that said, we were about to hit the record button, and I would mentioned to you, hey... Are you hearing like a kind of a robot echo as if your voice is going through a synthesizer just on the tail end of everything you say? And we did a little finagling and you're like, I don't hear it on my end. And I said, that's fine. It's as long as it's not getting recorded, although that would be super fun for everybody. It was not disruptive. I could just hear it in the voice. And so (laughs) we started this episode in earnest and then something hilarious that I didn't anticipate was going to happen ensued. And that was, as we got into the affirmations, the denials, you were just giving this epic, and actually to this day, I don't know what it is. Maybe it'll be that one we're about to hear. But you were giving this like just passionate affirmation. And I heard the beginning of it, but the more you spoke, the more your voice went from human to strictly robot, such that at the end, it was like I was in a weird episode of Star Wars. (laughs) See, and this is great. It's already happening again. Something <laughs> AJ has made an appearance. He has podcast level. So right now, what you all can't see is Tony's son, my adorable nephew. AJ has has just made his way into the room. He gave you that screech warning because of the story I was telling was so good. Yeah. Da, 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 da. He's very confused. Oh, he likes the microphone. Yeah, that's that's him gra- grabbing the mic. And that was Tony doing the Dada stuff, just so you know. He was, was doing trying, that for I was trying to get him to do it. Now he's going to do it as he walks away, of course. <laughs> he's waving goodbye to Uncle Jesse. He can't see, can't really see him. Greatest, greatest interruption of all time. I absolutely, <laughs> absolutely love it. So just like that, what happened is Tony's voice went from purely human with a little bit of synth on the end to purely droid. And it was, I could not contain myself. I was laughing so hard because it literally was if everything conspired to translate his voice on my end into some kind of robot speak. Yeah. And it had dynamics, it had like fluctuation, it had passion and interest still. It was just all robot. And I remember you paused because I was like leaning in to see like I was catching some words, but they were again purely in robot talk. And then I just, it was all lost. I couldn't, and we, we said, we can't even do this. Yeah, we, we, just, we just have to let it go. So my goodness, I wish that somehow that had been recorded for posterity to hear 
just the joy that I had. I was laughing. I was like, there were tears. I was laughing so hard. Yeah. I, I don't know. It just struck me as crazy funny. So we scrapped that. Yeah. I mean, over the course of 300 and up north of 340 episodes now, the number of times that we've actually had to scrap an episode due to technical issues is remarkably low. So th- thank you for everybody who didn't hit the unsubscribe button. We appreciate the grace that you've showed us on that. <laughs> hopefully the uh, hopefully the sermon from James 3 was edifying to people. And it was providential that we had I had a little bit of content sort of sitting in the hopper to fill in uh, in a situation like this. So I appreciate that, that everybody stuck with us. There's part of me that I knew I was going to talk about this with you that was hoping you might say something like, I don't even, what are you talking about? Like, I don't even remember sitting down with you. I would have been like, I knew it. It was AI. It the was AI got AI. caught though. Yeah. And it reverted back to its natural mother tongue. And you weren't even there. It was all AI generated. Because even the background, I was like, where are you? And you're like, I'm in a different room. And I was like, oh, okay. And then after that, everything. Like, that doesn't look like a room at the church. And it's like, <laughs> this is like what a room at the church would look like. If AI created it, it's like, <laughs> it wasn't quite right. Yeah. Like there was an uncanny valley, even in the background. I was like, uh, something seems off. And you're like, do not worry about it. Let's record. So yeah. it's funny. AI has certain tells. I don't know if you've looked at any of the, the AI bots. Yes. It uses a lot of like hortatory language. Let us do this. It uses like that kind of articulation that almost nobody actually does in real life anymore because it's the way that the language model works. So that's what it does with like rooms too. It's, it's got weird stuff. It uses like the language you would find and this is going to be weird, but like in a call to worship, you know, it's always like, let us worship together. Like I love that language on the Lord's day, but it's not necessarily used casually like that. So are you going to do the affirmation that I I heard in robots? This is fantastic for me because I'm going to be able now to like sync up what I heard last time with what I, uh, can hear now. So what are you affirming with? So I, I, I'm still, I have this beer still, and it's still as delicious as it was last week. Uh, I'm affirming a beer called Dogfish Head is the brewery. And the beer is called 120 minute IPA, but it's not the regular 120 minute IPA. They take their ordinary 120 minute IPA and they age it in utopia bourbon barrels. And it becomes this really rich, sweet, delicious, uh, super, super high alcohol volume beer. Uh, so they, they're in 12 ounce bottles. Take your time. Uh, it's actually 17% alcohol by volume, which is, I think probably the highest, uh, percentage beer that I've ever drank. Um, it might, I think maybe I ran into an 18% once, but, but, uh, it's, it's quite good. It's not cheap. So don't like expect to buy a ton of it. Uh, if you happen to find it, but it always comes out around this time of year. It's one of those like annual things where they, I mean, they're aging it in bourbon barrels. So they, they release it when a new year is passed and it's, it's reached its aging point. Um, but it's really good. It, it's sweet, but it's also, it's also got a little bit of a bitter edge to it. Um, but yeah, it's just delicious, but take your time with it. it it's pretty, it'll, it'll knock you over pretty hard if you, if you let it, uh, go in too fast. You actually bought one of these for me when we were together last week, and I can come about on board with this. It was absolutely delicious. It's like the happy combination, like really a lovely marriage between bourbon and beer. You do taste everything, Mm -hmm. but it's balanced, strangely. Nothing is too overpowering. It really is totally harmonious. 
and absolutely delicious. And it's the kind of thing that we were enjoying conversation and just sipping on that. It's like the, really the right combination of yeah. things. It's a sippable beer. It's not meant to be like gulped down. You can yeah. just like enjoy it. Again, proof that God is so good and that he loves us. These little things are just like delicious, like to have on your palate, yeah. to enjoy like a robust combination of flavors. And with that, you're getting a little bit of caramelization. You're getting the maltiness of their beer, a little bit of bitterness from the hops. And then you get that like lovely vanilla that comes yeah. from the barrel. So it's amazing to have like all these flavors, but they don't come from the places that you think they come from. Right. So you're getting a like chocolate, caramel, vanilla, but none of those things are actually in there. It's really amazing. I mean, God is just fantastic. Well, yeah. And, and the nice thing about a beer like this, it's, this might be controversial to some people, but I don't think it'll be controversial to most of our listeners. God has designed alcohol to do certain things. And, and it, one of those things that it does is it loosens you up. And so you do have to be careful because obviously there's a, there's a point of, of what that does to you that it becomes uh, unsafe and sinful to become drunk. But the fact that the Bible tells us that wine, wine makes the heart glad. Um, and that Paul tells Timothy to take a little bit of wine for his stomach. It, it was unlikely in my opinion that he was saying like the alcohol in the wine will calm your stomach down or will like heal your stomach ulcers. It's actually, I think more likely that, um, he had a nervous quote unquote nervous stomach and that Paul was basically saying like, drink a little bit of wine and calm down and, and let it, let it calm your nerves a little bit. Um, and it certainly does that. So this is a great beer for that. You don't have to drink a lot of it to, to get loosened up, but it does just go down, like take the edge off a little bit. Um, but definitely drink responsibly as all the beer commercials say. Uh, but yeah, it's, it was delicious. It's, it's easily in my top five beers of all time. And it's probably, probably, probably the best beer I've drank in a long time, I think. And I've had some really good beers lately, some really, really good craft beers lately, but this was like a cut above the rest. It's like if a chef put together a great meal and put it into a bottle and it yeah. was a beer, right? Like, yeah. because it's so complex. So yeah, if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, check it out. Tell them again what the name of it is so somebody can go search it out. It's called the 120 minute or 120 minute hot uh, IPA and it's made by Dogfish Head. But you have to look for the one that's called that says it was aged in Utopia barrels. So, so you can buy the 120 minute IPA all year round and it's just a really super hoppy IPA. The 120 minute aged in Utopia bourbon barrels is the one specifically I'm talking about. Right on. I love it. Yeah. What about you? What are you affirming? I'm just going to do this one last time. Maybe people are tired of me affirming in this direction, but for a couple of reasons, the first is this is still just so top of mind to me and I'm, I'm so much worshiping God for his goodness. And the second is because again, we do have a reputation. We have street credit, which we must uphold with respect to us being a top 50 healthcare podcast. So I am specifically affirming something called septomyectomy, or more generally, what a time to be alive yeah. because God does amazing healing through medicine. And there's nothing in all of the time frame and all of our horizons that says that we ought to have been born in this moment as everybody's listening to us, but God has been good to give us this moment and to place us here in such a time where we can take advantage of and he can use this kind of medicine to heal us. So this is one last time for all the people in the back, me just worshiping God for how he's provided for my family in the last couple of weeks, uh, especially my father having to go through open heart surgery and it was septal myectomy, which just so we can really relish how amazing it is that this kind of thing can be done. This surgery is basically to thin out the wall between the left and the right side of the heart. Yeah which in this case becomes thick and obstructs blood flow. 
And so this is a life-giving and life-saving surgery. And for this to take place, it happens under general anesthesia. It's an open heart surgery, meaning the surgeon is going to go in and open up the chest cavity to do this. And because the heart has to remain still, I mean, you're literally like cheese grating, like shaving down a part of the heart. A heart-lung bypass machine has to be used to perform the work of all your organs. So something is breathing for you. And I will say to you, when I spoke to the surgeon after this, by God's grace, successful surgery on the part of my father, I was just so overjoyed that had gone well and that God was so gracious. And so I remember just saying to the surgeon over and over again, like, thank you so much, doctor, for, for doing this. And he was so chill. He just kept being like, yeah, no problem. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> Well, good. No problem. Yeah. And again, I was just thinking, God has given us this time, this technology, these advancements, such that this was this doctor's like normal Tuesday. Like he went yeah. to bed Monday night, was like, yeah, I got to go, go to work in the morning. He did his work. He talked to me and was like, yep, that's great. I'm just going to grab lunch. I got more things to do. Yeah. So what a time to be alive. I'm just worshiping God and affirming his goodness to us in uh, all of this lovely medical intervention that he gives us, such that people may be restored and healed and be given life and have life saved. It's just remarkable. I sometimes think that it would be, there's like a nostalgic kind of romantic sense of like living in a prior era. I often yeah. think of like colonial American, uh, like the time before, in and after the Revolutionary War. And then I think I've said it in our conversations before, one word comes to me and one word only that says to me, I would never do that. And that word is anesthesia. Yeah. So it's just a lovely time to be alive. Yeah. Yeah. Or antibiotics is another good one yeah, exactly. or flush Lots toilets. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all <laughs> sorts of things. Carl Truman, who's, whose primary training is, a, is as a historian. Um, obviously he's a theologian and, and a pastor as well, but he's, you know, as a historian, he's often asked like, if you could live in any era of the world, which one would you live in? And he's like this one, the one where we, yeah. the one where we just flush the toilet and all of our excrement just goes away somewhere. And like, if we get sick, we just take antibiotics instead of like dying from the common cold. So yeah, definitely. And, and, and this surgery is, it's, it's crazy to think that like, and this we've, we've used this analogy a number of times, but like, if someone said to me, Hey, I'm going to rip your chest open. I'm going to cut yes. a piece of your heart out. Exactly. I'd be like, please, please don't do that. Please don't yes. do that. But this is like a life, a life giving healing surgery that requires a grievous wound in order to do it. So it's, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of what God does coming out of this series on the law. It's a beautiful picture of, of what God does for us in all sorts of ways. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. It's, it's an amazing procedure. And, and I actually saw, I saw him today. Um, and you wouldn't just looking at him, you wouldn't necessarily think, man, this guy's, this guy's chest was open, uh, two, you know, two and a half weeks ago or whatever. Um, you wouldn't think that. And, and that's just a testament to how quickly the body can, can heal in the right circumstances. Um, and how, how gracious God has been to our father, um, to heal him and to work him through this. So yeah, it's what a time to be alive. That's right on. I just cannot get over that. And there's one other thing I can't get over and I want to kind of add on. It's not any less significant, but of course, when you go through something like that, and there is a long period of convalescence. There's a road of healing that needs to happen. And that healing must happen in this context of rest yeah. and really separation from all your normal duties. And my mother is taking on so many things right now uh, to help out so that my father doesn't not only lift anything, but really uses arms because the healing is a long process. Yeah. And without that kind of help and support, it really cannot be done. And so I, I want to affirm her. Yeah. If anybody, I'm sure many people who are listening to us, but to care for a loved one, in a kind of post-operative 
series of time, you know that it's um it's a major investment yeah. and it can be tiring. The caregiving is hard. And so I affirm my mother and all those who are caregiving for loved ones in various capacities. Um, keep doing the good, keep doing the good and uh, let God reward you in that. And we pray that he will sustain you in that kind of care. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's do some denying. What are you denying against? So this is another, uh, what a time to be alive uh, denials, but it's a different, it's a different time to be alive. So uh, I don't know about you. I mean, I do know about you because we just talked about this. So that's not the most <laughs> honest segue. Uh, let me just tra- track that. Um I went outside the other day and it was like the apocalypse. I looked up at the sun. I go out for a run every morning and I, I maybe should have known about this. I don't know. Maybe I should have checked the news or something, but I had no idea what was going on. I went outside for my morning run. I take my son and we put him in this jogging stroller and we go for a brief run in the morning just to get outside and get some exercise, get some fresh air. And uh, I looked up at the sun and it was like hazy. And like, I was like, what is happening here? It looked like a sunset, but it was like, the sun was like midway through its morning course. Uh, it's because there was like fine smoke particles in the air from a forest fire in Canada. So I'm, I'm denying just forest fires, I guess. And like, I don't know, fine particulates that ruin your lungs when you try to breathe. Uh, so for people who maybe don't know or live in a part of the country where this doesn't matter, there are these crazy wildfires going on in in uh, Canada, primarily in the province of Quebec, I think. Um, and they've created this huge smoke cloud. It's like, like when you sit at a campfire and the, the wind changes and all the smoke blows directly in your face, right. it's like that, except the campfire is Canada. And my face is the, <laughs> is the Northeast of the United States. Uh, and, and so now we're just getting blasted by it. And then I went out later that afternoon. It wasn't so bad. I didn't feel any effects. And then I got home. I was like, man, have you seen the sun? And my wife was like, yes, there's a health advisory about going outside right now. Why did you go outside? I was like, I don't know. I just went for a run. I went outside later that day to go for another brief walk. And I walked outside and I was like, I was like, it smells like burning out here. I should probably go back inside. So it was relatively short lived where we are. It was only really like one day where it was bad, like bad to be outside. You could smell it. And then we, we got some rain and some wind and it kind of all dissipated, but other parts of the country, like where you are, I think, and and like New York city, especially are still really, really suffering the effects of these wildfires. Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to jump on your denial because uh, I had something else in mind, but let's, this is more fun. Let's pivot. I was with you. I, I was a little bit, you know, I heard that it was coming. And I will say part of me is skeptical, kind of like, okay, like sometimes there's air quality alerts and it'll be like, yeah. you know, if you suffer from certain conditions or you're you're prone to some kind of inflammation, just do not have any exertion outdoors or try to stay indoors. And I was like, ah, whatever. So I too went for a run and I it was fine until like a mile and a half in when I noticed that even like my mouth tasted a little bit ashy. Yeah. It was almost uh, coated in like a chalk. It was pretty gross. And then the following day, it was really bad. So... I'm totally with you. I think this is kind of like a denial of our own frailty and contingency again as human beings. That's something, while this is a major event, it's again, the fact that we need to breathe air and we need the air to be clean. And this is in some ways a natural event. This fire was started by a lightning strike. And so it is natural, of course. I mean, this is debatable to the extent of the magnitude of these kind of fires, but it is natural for force to catch fire, to burn down and then to regrow. But the fact that this is so large and it's impacting so many people 
just shows how contingent we are. So we have, I think, at some point, this kind of ongoing denial of our own contingency that we find God threatening in the sense that he is transcendent and great. We must rely on him, our life and breath and being, all of it is wrapped up in him. And so we find in moments like this where I kind of deny against that because, of course, I would love to be autonomous and just find it just turns out once and again that I'm not. And when there's tiny little smoke particles in the air, I have to stay inside because I'm human. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you stay inside, I mean, like you have central air in your apartment. We we don't. So like even inside, it gets in the house and like it's there. I mean, there's some there's some level of protection from just not having all of the external air circulating. But even even with a good air conditioner, like unless you have like a really high quality air filter and air purification system, it's still getting in there no matter what you do. So it, you're you're absolutely right. Like we are contingent creatures and and this is one of those things where to some effect we can slow and slow down these kinds of forest fires and and stop them but in a real sense a lot of times these forest fires these wildfires when they get going we we do our best to try to like direct them and aim them right. but we can't really stop them we just kind of have to let them burn their way out and then you know try to get people out of the pathway um, a lot of, a lot of forest fighting or forest fire fighting is creating fire breaks, not necessarily to try to stop the fire, but to try to sort of redirect it away from things that shouldn't be burned. Um, and then even, you know, you, you kind of referenced it. There's all this debate as to whether or not we should even be trying to stop these fire fight, these uh, forest fires, because a lot of times these, these under burned forests, they get all this undergrowth and it actually chokes out the trees. So right. the, this fire cycle that happens in these, these large forests is actually a very natural cycle to burn out all that undergrowth to allow the, the larger trees to continue to grow and then to sort of create nutrients for the smaller trees as they're planted. And so God's creation is sort of on this fine balance. He's created this system that in many ways is, is so fine tuned that when, when, it gets disrupted. It kind of throws everything out until it pushes itself back into some kind of equilibrium. So again, it's kind of one of those, what a time to be alive that we see that like right on display. Um, you know, and it's funny, I didn't, I didn't know this at the time. And now actually that I, I do know it, it makes my example even more poignant, but I, I referenced wildfires in the sermon last week because it was the preaching out of that section of James where it says, what a small spark can set ablaze an entire forest. Uh, and it, it's really true. Like I, I just a tiny, I mean, a lightning strike is not a small thing, but a, a very fine pointed event in one tiny location, one location has created all of this devastation that really has probably has global consequences in the long run. This is a, the kind of magnitude wildfire that may even change like global weather, weather patterns for a while. So it's crazy. It is. And to, I'm just going to harp on this one last time. Like, again, I guess all of our episodes can now be summarized by what time to be alive and healthcare. And this is like the combination of the two. <laughs> we just them all together. If you're in the U.S., you can use airnow.gov or if you have like a smart speaker of some kind, you can usually ask it, what is the air quality? I can only imagine that there's been so much traffic and interest in these measures. But the fact that like the U.S. government has a discernible metric and a scale for air quality is also a wild thing. Yeah, I think most of us never even cared about that. And now I've looked at it like for the past several days. I'm looking at the forecast I'm seeing even tomorrow that it is of a scale that says it is unhealthy for selective groups. 
So it's just amazing. And again, God is so kind and good to us that we might leverage and use technology that all of human reasoning, logic, and knowledge comes through him. It's application, it's refinement, it's discernment, all this wisdom that's applied into our lives and developed so that we might have at least theoretically greater blessings in this temporal space is all because God is good to us. I mean, this doesn't just happen in a vacuum. And I've just been marveling at how good and grand and amazing God is. And really, you know, as we've been going through this series of theology and systematic theology, and we just ended this amazing series on the Ten Commandments, which I'm really just still kind of recovering from, if that makes sense. Like it's still so fresh and processed in my mind. There's so many things I want to put into practice and I'm trying to really meditate on. And I think it's fitting then that we're going to move into a conversation about private prayer. We actually talked about the Ten Commandments, these 10 words as a springboard for prayer, both in confession and in rejoicing and supplication, and how they're so useful to us in this way. So in many ways, it makes sense now that we talk about private prayer. We've talked about prayer many times before in our conversations, but probably not exactly like this. And it's just time that we get to it. Yeah. Yeah. So the catechisms, the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms, are broken up. We referenced this, you know, over the course of the Ten Commandments series. They're broken up into sort of these two parts, and they map up to that first question of the of the um, catechisms of what's the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so, roughly speaking, the glorifying God part is the doctrine part. It's about right belief. It's about attributing to God true things about His nature, His character, and His works. So the right. first. It's not half. It's not broken out into halves, but the first section of the catechism, um, and then it follows into the next question or into the next couple questions, where the 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 scripture principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So those it's it's doctrine and then it's devotion. Joe Thorne trademark, um, but it's it's doctrine and then it's it's practice. It's it's what we believe and then what we do. And so the, the ethical part of Christianity, which we summarize in the Ten Commandments, it has this outflow now into this practical behavior of dependence on God. And the, only, the, the primary way that we demonstrate our dependence on God or that we actually are dependent on God is through prayer. So yes, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that trust has feet. It, it does certain things. Right. It it, it um, rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. It receives from the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are both kind of passive things that it does. But there are also active things that faith does, not in not in terms of receiving justification. It's passive in its reception of justification, but it's active in its response to what Christ has done. It's active in its response to God's sanctifying work. And I, I don't know that I could point to a chapter or verse or a section in the catechism that says this, but one of the chief acts of faith in, in this sort of register of things, the chief active thing that faith does is it prays to the Lord. It, it communicates to and with the Lord. And that's, that's something we do out of faith as a response to what God has done. And so the the Ten Commandments show us what it is to live a righteous and holy life. But this, this idea of prayer is what it is to commune with the Lord. So we often think about like communion with the Lord as sort of this like kind of mystical background thing that's happening. Like we're united to Christ and so we're constantly communing with him. And that's of course true, but there's this active communing with God that we all, all Christians need to be growing in 
um, to greater or lesser degree, we all do, is prayer. And now, now I think we also think of prayer as like just that time that we sit down and we fold our hands and we bow our head, or maybe we, you know, we do a certain posture. We say, dear Lord, do this, please bless this, you know, but prayer is a much more comprehensive life act than just those moments of prayer, those times of prayer. Um, and we're going to get into some of that throughout this episode, but th- this first episode in sort of this prayer, private prayer sequence here is really talking about like, what is prayer and why do we do it? And, and what does it do for us? And what does it do to us? Those are all kinds of questions we want to get at tonight. And we're making that distinction, of course, because we talked a lot, I think, in the series of Reform Preaching about corporate prayer, what it means to participate with the Lord's people together. Yeah. And so, of course, we're not abstracting from that. We're not saying that these things are in competition with one another, but that especially there is a role for private prayer. How do we understand what that means? And hopefully not like in this weird, like, Reader's Digest cliche sense, you know, like, here's a certain, there's not necessarily anything wrong with this, but here's like a certain acronym you can use. There's seven right. steps to like a greater prayer life. It's so much more than that. Maybe it's not less than that in like us deciding to be volitional about undertaking prayer as good work that we can do. And it is work, but the pattern that we have in the scriptures, the place from which we are coming from the genesis of this conversation is that we see both God's people, both prophets, both priests, both our Lord and Savior Jesus himself, making this a pattern. It's a pattern in a pedigree. So for instance, in Psalm 5, we see the psalmist saying, morning by morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Morning by morning, I lay my request before you and await in expectation. So what we see is those who develop the habit of private prayer. I mean, again, we don't need to explain this, but the kind of prayer that is just you, you by yourself, you somewhere where you are away from all other things or as separated from those things mentally, emotionally, physically as possible. That kind of prayer, those who do that follow Jesus in a really special way because the Bible makes it clear that very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house. He went off into a solitary place where he prayed. That was Jesus's habit. And so Luke tells us that even like the night before he called his, his followers and chose the 12 disciples, Jesus went on to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And in fact, that that's the sequence where he goes and walks on the water that means to pass them by as they're transgressing, not transgressing, transversing. <laughs> probably transgressing too. There's probably some transgressing. I mean, there's always transgressing is where he means. So like the beautiful thing about being a Christian is that those who follow Christ can follow him into private prayer in a place of prayer and can talk there with their father in heaven. And then in this way, we imitate the savior, our savior in extremely significant manner. So I don't want that to get lost because I'm sure there's lots to talk about prayer, but there's something special that God allows us to emulate, to come after his son, our first brother in our habits of talking to him. And then he, very clearly demonstrates that to us in the scriptures, giving us some kind of pattern without making it so prescriptive and rigid and narrow that we can't also express our own burdens, our own personalities in that prayer. So there's this invitation to pray in a private way, which I think we just need to appreciate. That's an amazing invitation. Like we are used in our world to not having access to important people, places, and things. Yeah. Because for most of us, we're far too average to gain the kind of, of, uh, accolades to be able to go in and to have audience with the people who are important. And God invites that in his beautiful confluence of transcendence and imminence. And then to say this command, you ought to pray. And then to give this example, you ought to pray privately. And then in praying privately, even the act itself follows, comes alongside 
tries to emulate our savior is a remarkable thing. So like we should start from this place of saying, it's just a privilege. What a time to be alive. Again, we're like, yeah. we can see on this side of having the cross and having the example of Jesus that we get this lovely example of what it means to pray privately. Yeah. And I think before we kind of jump into some of the, the, catechetical content. That's hard to say. Um, Before we jump into some of this, sort of what the catechisms have to say about this, there's an example in the scripture, a sort of a typological example in the scripture that I think is really important to bring to bear on this conversation. And it operates kind of twofold. And this is this example that we see in the book of Esther, right? So Esther is a very interesting book. Um, Matt Whitman on the the, uh, 10 minute Bible hour is now on season three, which is funny because season one was like 800 episodes through the book of Matthew. Season two was like 70 episodes going through the entire Bible, one book at a time. And now he's on the book of Esther and he's on like episode 30 of the Esther series. And he's just gotten to Esther, uh, but he's doing this series on Esther. And there's this scene in towards the end of Esther where Esther has to go into the presence of King Xerxes and she's fearful because there was some rule in in Persia that if you go into the presence of the king and you haven't been invited, that you're subject to death unless he extends his grace to you in the form of like touching you with this golden scepter. And so this is first and foremost a picture of Christ coming into God's presence on our behalf, right? So Christ comes into the presence of the Father. And the father responds to him graciously, the same way that Xerxes, or in a similar way that Xerxes responds to Esther graciously. And so the Christ comes into the presence of the father with his petition for on our behalf, right? His intercession for us. That's the primary picture, I think, in, in typological mode that this is giving us. But a secondary picture is now our access to the throne room of grace is now when we come into the throne room, which to go into the presence of God uninvited in a sinful state is to, to, to sort of garner death, right? The Holy of Holies was a dangerous place to go. It wasn't safe. It wasn't fun. It wasn't friendly. It was a dangerous, scary place to go. If you did not have the exact right prescription and the exact right, um, clothes and the right ceremony and the right person at the right time of year to go in, there was death. But now we go into the, the Holy of Holies in the presence of the Lord and he extends his grace to us because of his son, Jesus Christ. That is a picture of what prayer is for us Right? is it's not only this. Um, we think of prayer. I shouldn't say we, I think that the common evangelical understanding of prayer, and I've heard this articulated explicitly, although I couldn't point to a specific source is like when a kid crawls up on his father's lap and asks for something. I understand where that's coming from, and I guess to a certain extent that's true. The Bible uses this affectionate fatherhood language in reference to prayer specifically that what father, when when asked for a bread, gives a stone. You know, that language is there. But I think this picture in Esther is a much more accurate version, is, is we go into the presence of the Father— we go in with fear and trepidation because, because we're going into the presence of a holy God. And because he has acted graciously to us, because he's graciously granted us the status that he's given us, he welcomes us and extends that, that sort of golden scepter to us. And now, now we come to him with our petitions, just like Esther now petitions the king to say, this is what's going on with my people. And, and this, is a, this is a tragedy and I need you to do something about it. And he says, okay, let's do something about it. So that's the that's the image of prayer that I want us to keep in our head as we talk through this, because we're, we may not do it in exactly a strict sequence from here, but we're going to be going through 
the, the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, to look at each petition and kind of what it has to do and how does it instruct us in this model of prayer, that's the register that we need to think in, is this register of fearful acceptance by the Lord. We were accepted by the Lord because of Jesus Christ, but right. it's not something we should take for granted. It's ours and it can never, it never will be revoked, but it's still something that we should not take for granted that this is not a safe place to be apart from the protection that is afforded to us in our union with Christ. There's no doubt it's a mediated access. So we get like a double reward in that, in that we still get access, but we get to appreciate, honor, and acclaim the one who has given us that mediated access, the one who has earned it or has the right to it. So I often think of it like, you know, if I am washing dishes at my sink with my back turned to most of my kitchen and some random person pops up behind me and styles me, I'll be like, who are you and what are yeah. you doing in here? Now, if I turn around and there's a random person with my wife and she says, oh, this is my friend so-and-so, like immediately I'm like, okay, welcome. Yeah. Like you belong here right. because it's been a mediated access and there's no surprise there. Now that's like a really cheap version of, of course, everything you just said, which was better. But this is why like we're driven to like these amazing words in Hebrews, which are off quoted, but worth saying again in Hebrews 4. This is Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, because since we have a great high priest, that is Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So first we're given the authority to reach out and to grab something and to cling to it with all that we have. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all the things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, because of all that stuff, because this is true, we cling to it. We have authority and permission to do that and to grab hold of it, to put our arms around it and make it ours. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So like to your point, I think sometimes as Christians, we cheapen that going in. So when David yeah. says like, I don't want to come trampling into your courts. It's totally appropriate to say we're coming, as it were, into hallowed ground. Yet, we don't come with a sense of fear, but with holy dread, one that is reverent and with great respect. But there still is an invitation. The Father calls to us through Jesus Christ because of the Holy Spirit and says, come, come in, come unreservedly, but with reverence. And yeah. so this is like, again, the double blessing because we get access and we also get to praise the one who has given us that access. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I want to look at, um, we're not going to go through this point by point, but our, our primary kind of source from the tradition on this is going to be Westminster larger catechism starting in question 178. And at least for today, it's really going to be through question 186. And so we kind of a little bit of behind the scenes, uh, I don't know, inside baseball. I always make a title for the episode and then I changed the title based on what we actually have talked about because we don't really know what we're going to talk about until we actually talk about it because we don't do any planning. Um, and I kind of called this episode Prayer Legomena. I thought I was really, really clever with Prayer Legomena. I liked it. But that's really what this is. It's kind of a prolegomena to the discussion on the Lord's Prayer in this, this petition and, or in this confession. And so it, it asks things like, what is prayer? What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus Christ? How does the Spirit help us pray? What are the things we're supposed to pray for? What is the rule that God has given us to direct our prayer? So these are the questions we have to kind of ask. And like I said, we're not going to go through them point by point, but I would really encourage the listener to just go. I I always use the OPC's version of the, um, the catechism. 
to my knowledge, there haven't been any modifications in the catechisms. Um, the confession itself was modified, but the catechisms, as far as I know, are the same as they were in the 1600s when they were first published. Um, this is a really, really rich place to go if you're wanting to start a study on prayer. There's all sorts of amazing works on prayer that that are out there that you can read on. But before you spend a lot of time reading sort of these private opinion type e type emails, type documents, totally valuable. Systematic theologies are great. Mono, you know, monographs on prayer are great. But before you spend a lot of time really digging into these private opinion um, documents, go to the actual ecclesiastical documents of our tradition. I haven't studied the Heidelberg Catechism, but I know they have a section on the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure it's very good there as well. But this is really the, the basic definitions and understanding that drive our concept of private prayer. This is a great place to start with it. So why don't we kind of talk through like question 178, what is prayer? And the answer is prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of the Holy Spirit with confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. I mean, I couldn't find a better short definition of prayer. If, I think if you looked for it, I don't know that you would find a better one out there. Right on. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, and we you know we're, I would like to say we're known for something. Maybe we're not known for anything, but we're always, of course, trying to take what we're talking about that's theological and weighty and grand and to bring it down into this place where it has the shoe leather that we often speak about. And to me, what I hear in that question is this idea, like I think impounded in it, is what is this goal of the Christian life? And it's godliness born of obedience to Christ. And obedience unlocks the riches of the Christian experience. And prayer is what prompts and nurtures obedience, putting the heart into the proper frame of mind to desire obedience. So it's all the things that we talk about and we pontificate about and we opine about yeah. in respect to theology, but prayer is the work that happens where the Holy Spirit comes and illustrates, illuminates, opens our eyes, educates our minds so that we might actually use this for godliness, that we might be educated and put forward into this life such that we are obedient to Christ and therefore receive the blessings of Christ. That's what I hear when you read all that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's really interesting to me is one of the elements that I think is missed, and I need to study this more actually, but one of the, th the elements of prayer that I think is missed in a lot of discussions is that prayer is actually in the scripture, prayer is often imaged as like a sacrifice that we make to God, right? right? In, in the book of Revelation, um, the prayers of the saints are seen in this vision that John is having as, as the fragrant incense that's being burned and offered up to the Lord. Right. And so we think when we think of prayer, it's not wrong to think of it as um, communication. You know, that's kind of like prayer is a conversation with God. That's not wrong. It's not not wrong, but it's only a partial picture. And so I love the language of the catechism here. Prayer is an offering up of our desires. It's not a communicating our desires to the Lord. He already knows the desires that we have. It's an offering up. And that word offering is not just like, here you go, God. It's it's an offering. It's a, a sacrifice of prayer that we make to the Lord. We we sacrifice our desires to him in the act of prayer. And it this is done in the name of Christ. So we're, we'll we'll talk about what that what that is because the next several questions un, kind of unpack a clause, each, each of these clauses in here. But reframing our discussion of prayer away from sort of this concept. Again, it's not wrong. 
I understand where it comes from, and the scripture certainly supports this idea that prayer is an ongoing conversation between God and the believer. It's a communication of our desires and our needs. All of that is true, and, and there are good scriptural evidences of that. And, and I wouldn't even say that this, this sacrifice language is the primary way that scripture talks about it, but it is certainly a way that scripture talks about it that I find to be lacking in a lot of these conversations. So I'm glad that our tradition kind of guides us in this direction. I think it's important for us to keep that kind of as a corrective to some of these other examples. Just like it's not untrue that prayer is like when a child crawls into his father's lap to ask for something or when, when a child hurts himself and he runs to his father and wants to jump into his father's arms. Those are true, true enough pictures of what, what prayer is, but it's not the whole picture. And it's not even, it's not even the primary thing that we see in the scripture as prayer. Prayer in the scriptures is this serious event where we come before the Lord of the universe to make our needs known, to make our petitions known and to demonstrate our servants, our service and our loyalty to him. It's not just about coming to God to ask him for things. It's a service and a sacrifice that we give to the Lord to come and pray to him. There is a massive mystical part of this, but it's not yeah. mysticism, disassociated or dislocated right. from knowledge of the truth. So, of course, like we would always promulgate the knowledge is important because without it, we cannot know what God requires. But knowledge and truth will remain abstract unless we commune with God in prayer. Yeah, And this is the pattern the Bible gives us. Like, that's just a statement of fact. It's the Holy Spirit who teaches, inspires, and illumines God's word to us. He mediates the word of God and assists us in responding to the Father in prayer. So this idea, this command, actually, that we pray privately is so epically important and so epically mysterious because God is using this to change us. It's not like something he's requiring us to do so that like he would feel good or like we would just talk to him because he's so desperately and wants to talk to us and he's frustrated if we don't call enough. You know, It's not like that at all. Prayer has like this vital place because it is part and parcel of the life of the Christian. Yeah. First, like it's an absolute prerequisite for salvation. So as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, one of the amazing things about prayer is that some people cannot hear, you know, yet though they're deaf, they can be saved. Some people are not able to see yet, even though they're blind, they can be saved. Knowledge of the good news, salvation through atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will come from one source or another. But in the final analysis, a person must humbly ask God for salvation. And the prayer of salvation is one prayer of the wicked that God said he will hear. Yeah. So even we're saying like before we talk about like the Christian life, even this prayer is so important that it is the thing that brings salvation, the application of salvation, not a specific prayer, not the quote unquote sinner's prayer. There's no specific, you know, kind of formulation or permutation of words that is magical in the sense that it automatically grants the salvation. It is the act of calling out on the name of Jesus Christ for help. And in some ways, like we never get beyond that. Yeah. No matter how mature we think we are Christians, that classroom of prayer, we will just never leave the desk yeah. because there's always something on the blackboard that we need to learn. And so even as we're talking about it here, I'm just struck by the fact that God commands us to pray because it's that praying, that helping, that seeking, that asking in our very initial state of moving from the carnal man to the spiritual man by the gift of Jesus Christ in his sacrifice, his life, death, and atonement, resurrection. And then again, the application of that through the Holy Spirit that saves us and we have to confess. And so we do that through prayer predominantly and firstly. And then thereafter, that should just be our normative rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just going to like blow up the whole episode here. So 
buckle up, I guess. Let's do it. Let's do it. I think that this sort of this reference to the sinner's prayer actually brings to mind something that I think is super, super vital for us to remember when we're any, any discussion of prayer has to, has to have this as part of it. God does not listen to the prayers of the unbeliever. And so, although what you're saying is true, it's true in a sense that it it, it reveals a, a truth about prayer. So God listens to the prayer for someone who's asking for salvation, right. but that prayer is already taking place in a context of trust, right? So that, that prayer is already a prayer from someone who has exercised faith in Christ. And so all prayer, all prayer that is coming truthfully and is valid prayer is prayer in the context of trust in the Lord. So the person who is coming to the Lord for salvation and is praying the sinner's prayer, let's assume that they're, they're a genuine convert. It's not a false convert, you know, a false convert, a false convert. That person who, who believes that the Lord will save them and prays and asks for the Lord to save them, save them. Logically, they've already trusted in the Lord to do that work. Right. And so, so prayer is, it ha- is and only can be an act of, of faith. It can only come from a place of faith. And that's actually true when we, we think about asking anybody for anything, right? It, this, this, we don't even need to think about that in reference to like theological terms. I'm not going to ask somebody for something unless I actually believe on some level that one, they can provide it. They're able to provide it. And two, they, they actually may provide it or will provide it, right? I'm not going to go to the bank and ask them for a loan if I don't think they actually have the funds available to provide that loan for me. That's just, there's no logic to that. People don't always act logically, but in a, in a sort of like logical thought process, the belief that someone is able to grant what you're asking for has to precede the actual asking of the thing. And it's the same with prayer. So no matter what we're praying, when we come to the Lord, we are already believing that he's there, that he exists. We believe right. that he can hear us. We believe that he's able to and desirous of granting that to us. All of those things have to come first. And I think that that is, that's maybe the most important thing for us to remember about, about prayer is that it has to come and it always does come from a place of prayer. And I would actually venture, this might be an overstatement, but I don't think it is. I would actually venture to guess that a, a life of prayerlessness is probably indicative of a life that actually lacks faith. Now, that doesn't mean like it lacks any any semblance of saving faith, but I do really think that prayer in some form and in some way is the primary act of faith once we get into the sort of active, active acts of faith rather than the passive reception of faith. Crying out to the Lord, communicating with him, and then asking him to bless you those are all acts of faith that really only happen through prayer. You can't ask the Lord to bless you if you're not praying to him. Like there's, right. that's a, that's an incoherent statement. So if we don't, if we don't take anything else away from this, I think that the primary definition of faith has to include that it comes from this place of, of faithfulness, not faithfulness, Absolutely. of faith filledness. You have to be full of faith in order to, pray in the first place. And if you are full of faith, then you necessarily will pray. Now, again, people go through seasons where their faith is more or less active. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that like a person who doesn't pray regularly is necessarily 
unsaved, necessarily faithless. But there is a definite relationship between the faithful person, the person who's full of faith and who is is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and someone who cries out to him and prays to him on a regular basis. I think you're right. We can't forget that Paul is really explicit about the fact that all our prayers are still intermediated by this spirit who intercedes on our behalf. So like we talked about before, and we referenced John Bunyan, this idea of like what it means to groan inwardly or Godwardly. And yeah. sometimes we just think about it for such great pain that we just don't have the words. It's more than that. We honestly don't know how to pray. Even when we think right. we are experts at it or really well-practiced in it, we actually don't know how to pray. And the Holy Spirit is, as it were, if I can use kind of like a more grotesque metaphor, is like correcting our prayers. Like he's going through it with like the red pen. And before the Father, he's correcting it all. So when, it rece- when the Father receives them, they're acceptable to him. What that means then is that to your point, even the person who is coming, let's say the unbeliever, the wicked person who's coming and making this prayer, this confession of faith, if it is a prayer that is acceptable for God, it must by its own nature necessitize, by necessity, it is something the Holy Spirit has already interceded before. And the Holy Spirit only intercedes for those who are elected and called right. by God, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like even at the beginning, we see like the work of the Holy Spirit always present. This Holy Spirit is always interceding. So no matter, again, what kind of expert we think we are, that's just how it goes. So I'm totally with you. And, and I think like to add on to one thing you said, which I think was actually right on and is maybe most people haven't thought about is that one of the very special things about private prayer is it's really difficult to do at a false motive. Yeah. So like one might preach out of a false motive, as of course false prophets do. One might be involved in like Christian activities out of false motives. But many of the externals of like religion might be done from all kinds of false motives, motives. but it's really highly improbable that anyone would commune with God out of some improper motive. Right. So that's what we're kind of after here. That's what I think why God bifurcates corporate and private prayer. And, you know, J.C. Ryle and his call to prayer is, is like really condemning about the fact that prayer is this most common expression of authentic faith. And as you're saying, the it's possible that many people will pray and not be Christian, but you cannot be a Christian and not pray. Yeah, That doesn't, I would say, like mitigate the fact that there will be seasons when your prayer life will ebb and flow. But that desire to want to come before the Father and turn over your burdens, turn over desires to use the catechism language is not present somewhere. That there is like this drawing to want to reach out to the Father. That again, it is spirit-enabled and is generated by the Spirit himself. That, of course, should make sense because the heart that belongs to God has been transformed by God and therefore is drawn back to God. And as a result of that, there will be a desire to communicate with God. Yeah. So all of that is present, but to varying degrees and varying magnitudes. But that first principle, that draw is still present. So we we shouldn't be like we said, like I would say condemned or discouraged per se. If you're thinking, you know what? I feel like I need to pray more. Welcome to being a Christian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we have a club. We meet on the Lord's Day at your local church together. But it should draw us into <laughs> wanting to give that sacrifice, like yeah. wanting to be a part of offering that up. And where we offer it up is the hard work of prayer. You know, everybody like notoriously says prayer is the easiest thing and the hardest thing. Both those things are true. They exist in this kind of contrariety that is a perfect e- expression of what it means to want to speak to God. But that's why like we're harping so much on like private prayer. It is very different. Yeah. And one of the ways it's, it's different is it's difficult to do at a false motive. 
Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to some of these themes. Uh, I know this has been kind of like the fire hose approach of, of podcasting where we just throw a bunch of stuff at you, but we, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to come back to a lot of these themes as we, like I said, I'm not a hundred percent sure it's going to be like a direct sequence through the Lord's prayer, but as we come to the Lord's prayer episodes, we'll come back to these themes because we're going to have to dip back into what it, what actually prayer is as we talk about these different petitions. What is, what does it mean to petition the Lord for his name to be hollowed? Yeah, How does right. that relate to what prayer even is that those are the mm-hmm. kinds of questions we're going to come into. So do us all a favor and especially me and go through the, the catechism questions on this before the episode next time. I, I don't know if podcasts are allowed to give homework, but I'm going to do it anyways. So no read else. through questions 178 through 180. Uh, 178 through 186 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, because even even something as straightforward as what this is my favorite. I love this question in the Catechism. What rule has God given to direct or for the direction in the duty of prayer? Well, guess what? There's a regulative principle of prayer. Like like this is one of those things that we just don't think about. You you don't get to just pray any way you want to. There there's a rule to direct us how we are to succeed at the duty of prayer. That's just something that I don't find commonly talked about in discussions of prayer. So I'm excited to sort of jump in and out or, or just go through the Lord's prayer, talk about these questions and what they mean and what, what it is that we're petitioning the Lord for, why we're petitioning the Lord. And most importantly, I think, what does this model of prayer, this rule of prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us, what does it actually teach us about what it means to pray? Because right. When the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray, there may have been an element of it, of them sort of saying, like, give us the prescribed prayers, because there were prescribed prayers and sort of formalized prayers in first century Judaism, right? There was specific prayers that were said at specific times, and that's fine. But I think more than just give us the prescribed prayer, they were really asking more what is the rule to direct us how we're to pray? And what the Lord does is he gives them, he gives them this model prayer that really touches on a lot of different elements of what prayer even is and how it is to be executed. So it's a, it's a really rich section of scripture that, yeah, I think people, people have probably been through a Bible study on, or they've heard a sermon series on, um, I know lots of podcasts do series on the Lord's prayer and covering each petition. I'm not trying to cast shade on those. Those things are all good, but I'm excited to talk through them sort of in this longer format that we've been doing with this stuff to just really dig into what it is that the Lord is trying to teach us through, through giving us this model prayer. I'm totally with you. I'm super excited that basically what we're ramping up to what we're running the ramp on is to jump off into the Lord's prayer. Yeah. So we're not like trying to tease it or bury the lead. It's coming, but like we've talked about, I think we all, I'm, I'm just speaking to myself, I guess, need to have a greater appreciation for this idea of private yeah. prayer, this invitation, this lovely and amazing access, this unvarnished access, like to be able to come in again to this throne room, but to come in with the understanding that it's been given to you as a great privilege and that it won't be revoked because of what Christ has earned. But it was Christ to grant. The Father gave him right. all things. And one of the things that he gave them was for his children to be able to have the special access, the privilege that Christ himself earned and had by way of relationship now is extended to all those who are his children, who yeah. have been adopted into his family. It's just absolutely incredible. And then as if that weren't enough, as you've already noted here, and this is where we're going, 
Jesus gave so many great instructions on this. He told his disciples several brief parables, for instance, like aside from going to like the confessions and the catechism, take just a look at the prayer in Luke 11. You know, all of, I think the prayer instruction that God gives, especially through Jesus can be summed up like this. Ask and it's going to be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. But that isn't like this kind of just like really opens without like fence posts, without guidepost kind of statement. There are boundaries around this because again, we've talked about love always is a binding process because God loves us, has bound himself to us, has given promises for us, has made a way so that we might walk in it. It necessarily means that there are going to be boundaries to that. And so we find it, of course, true in prayer itself. So there shouldn't be any question about whether or not we should pray privately. And God is always greater than our logic. And when it comes to things of the spirit, there is some mysticism here. We must not be logical, but biblical. And Jesus not only teaches us to pray, he also encourages us in the strongest possible language to practice prayer. So here's a little bit of homework for me and you and everybody else. You and I have talked about this really amazing book, like Atomic Habits, that's worth reading by itself. One of the great kind of admonishments in that book is if you want to start doing something, just do it for two minutes. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm going to say. Pray for two minutes. Yeah. So time. If you're like overwhelmed, like I don't even know what to do. Two minutes is like nothing, right? Yeah. Like you can do anything for two minutes. You can probably do push-ups for two minutes. Yeah. If you've never done push-ups in your life, pray for two minutes. By yourself, close the door, go into the bathroom. Whatever it needs, run away. Wherever it is that you need to go. To the bathroom? Go do you pray in the bathroom? Two minutes. I have prayed in the bathroom when I need to get away from people. It's true. I've absolutely just gone in and shut the door because nobody will bother you in there. And they'll just think, wow, something of great intestinal fortitude is happening in there because you've been in there for so long. Nobody will bother you. Yeah. Um, so try it for uh, two minutes. That's a great call to action. And I think so, I think you're absolutely right. Like the, the, one of the key insights that I gleaned from the Atomic Habits book is if you want to start doing something, the first step is to start doing something like you, you can, you can plan and plan and plan and plan for how you're going to start your new habit. But at the end of the day, the first real step is to just do the thing. And, and that's just the way it is. And and this is maybe a silly example. Um, I've always wanted to be a person who runs. I wouldn't call myself a runner yet at this point, but I've always wanted to be a person who runs regularly. And the reality is the way that I started doing it is I just went out and started doing it. One morning, I, I don't even remember exactly when it was or why it was. I decided I'm just going to be the kind of person that runs a little bit every day. So I started off, I just put on my running shoes. I put the kid in the, the running stroller. So we're going to just run for one minute and then I'm going to walk the rest of the time. And I, I'm not, it's not like I'm some amazing runner. I run for four minutes now, but I've run almost every day for the last three months. Like, and it was just a small step. I have not applied that principle to prayer to my own detriment, to my own shame, I think. Same here. Right? So it's it's an it's an admonition for us. It's an admonition for us. But I think it's a good challenge for all of us to think about that. And, and it, it, I'll even say it. If two minutes feels like too much, do one minute. Set a timer for 30 seconds. Like, it's not as though God is up there with a stopwatch going like, oh, you didn't hit your two minutes. You didn't hit your... The point of that exercise is to is to become the kind of person that it is true of them that daily regular prayer is a feature of their life. 
That's the point of doing this sort of atomic habit style. So it's, it's almost irrelevant how much time you devote to it at first. The point is to build the habit, to build the practice, and then you can work on expanding it. And actually what I found with running, I, I have this whole algorithm that I use to know when I need to move up to the next level. It's this 1% improvement thing. What I find is I'm actually chomping at the bit to get to the next phase. So I'm actually outpacing that 1% improvement on a regular basis with, with the running, with pushups, with Bible memorization. I'm actually champing at the bit to outpace that 1% improvement. I guarantee you, and I'm going to try this and, and see if it's true, but I'd be willing to bet if betting was not a sinful violation of the prohibition of stealing, I'd be willing to bet that you're going to be outpacing that 1% improvement. If you just do this regularly, right. you're going to have a passion. You're going to have a desire and you're going to have the habit to do it. So thank Thanks for challenging us on that, Jesse. I didn't even think about that. Honestly, like that was never even in my mind. And now I, now we've got this great kind of like challenge to issue and, and sort of admonition and encouragement for everybody. Listen, I'm, I'm with you. We'll, we'll report on it next week. We can talk about how we both did and how we tried to apply that because I think it's, it's worthwhile. Uh, one more thing I'll say, and that is, you know, we love that we get to have these conversations with each other. I, of course, love speaking with Tony. And it's just kind of a double blessing. It's a little bit icing on the cake that we get to have other people hang out, listen along, participate in the conversation. And here's one thing that we can commit to you is you've, there will never be anything behind a paywall with the Reformed Brotherhood. There's never going to be, you know, it's it's not because people haven't asked us to do some kind of sponsorship. Like Squarespace would love for us to talk about their web hosting abilities or Purple would love for you for us to tell you how comfortable their mattresses are. That will never happen here. And the reason why is because there are brothers and sisters who after giving generously to their own churches have said, you know what, I have a little bit left over. I want to make sure that this podcast remains free and accessible and easily downloadable and sounding like you guys aren't sitting in a dumpster talking to one another. And so they've used patreon.com. You can go to patreon.com backslash reform brotherhood and they've just given a little bit. There are so many brothers and sisters who have said, you know what? I am happy to give just a dollar a month to make sure that all of this happens. We are so grateful. Yeah. And if you're also thinking, you know what? I want to pay it forward. I've had a great time listening to all of this amazing healthcare talk. And where do I get my air quality alerts if not from the Reformed Brotherhood? I want to make sure that everybody else has the opportunity. You can do that too. And we're super thankful. So thanks for everybody who makes that a part of their regular giving. Man, it makes such a difference. Yeah. I'm totally undone and humbled by that gift. And it's the kind of thing that allows us to keep going. Yeah. And, and Jesse and I are not, uh, we're not spending it on 120 minute IPAs or anything like that. Um, <laughs> not that shows, I mean, there, there are shows that, that that's part of their model that they, they purchase no things for, for themselves. That. Th that's not how we use it. So just, just a little bit of a glimpse. I just want to share this, not, not to try to like guilt people into this, but just to sort of give an example of what it is that no we, that we use this for. So a lot of podcasts get by with something called auto, uh, audacity for their editing software. It's a free software, but it's incredibly cumbersome to use. It's very slow. So a little while back, I started using a software called Hindenburg, which is designed for podcasting and it makes right. everything super fast and super easy. Honestly, as a new dad and someone who works full time has a ministry and is, is at least right now is studying to preach every week. Um, I don't have time to spend on all of the stuff that requires when I use audacity. It's just a lot of time. Hindenburg takes my editing time from like two hours for an episode down to about 20 minutes, but it also costs like two or $300 a year, depending on the level you have to use Hindenburg. 
Hindenburg. So that's the kind of expense when we talk about, yeah, there's some overhead expenses. That's the kind of expense we're talking about. We have to host the website. We have to pay for audio files to be you know, distributed. There are expenses that brothers and sisters who listen to the show are paying for so that this show can be published published to the masses on masses is probably an over an over grandized <laughs> statement but can be published not not because jesse and i are anything special there's lots of people that do podcasts there's better podcasts to listen to than this to be honest with you for sure not that we're a bad podcast i, I feel like i'm digging a hole that i can't get out of get out the point Hold of this up. the point of the story the, the end point of this is that th there are costs and there are brothers and sisters who've been extremely generous. Yes. Uh, and if you want to be a part of that, you don't have to be. This will always be a free show as long as we exactly. can afford it to be a free show and, and we can can get by on that. There will never be a paywall. Um, Jesse and I both have purple mattresses, so maybe we should tell you how comfortable they are, <laughs> but we're never going to get paid for it. We're not going to, we're not going to yes. have those kinds of advertisements as, as yes. long as I can help it. Um, and part of the reason we don't even have to consider that is because people are generous with with their leftover or with their leftovers, with their abundance uh, to help us make this happen. So if you want to do that, great. If not, if you want to listen to the show and you, you either don't want to or can't contribute, that's great, too. Um, hey, we would okay. we would ask share the show with somebody else, though, because the, the whole point is to get this theology and to get the gospel to get this, this doctrinal statement, doctrinal content out to people. So share the episode with someone you think it would be useful. Uh, we've heard crazy stories. Like when we did the Micah series, people using the podcast to like be the beginning of their Bible study. I don't know how I feel about that, but it was helpful to them. So um, this, that's the kind of stuff that we love to hear is that this is useful. It's edifying uh, and that it's, it's being used to glorify God and to bring about change and restoration and, and, and education in people's lives. So since we're contingent beings in so much and as long as God allows us to do it, we're going to keep on trucking. We so are. with that said, until the next time we do this, let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. we